Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. And we've moved on, we're in 2 Corinthians now, the sequel. Actually, there were probably like 5 Corinthian letters, and a bunch of them got lost. Um, so we have 1 and 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is all about the struggles that happen when life meets God's kingdom. And Paul deals with relationship problems, he talks a lot about his own plans and his troubles with you know, so-called super-apostles. And one of these major themes running throughout this letter is that God will offer us comfort in our troubles. And therefore we should offer comfort to one another. And there is a challenge to come. It's less famous and less quotable, but it's still um, there's still lots to open up. So, let's read Corinthians 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. And if you've read that, look at the precedent. God is the Father of compassion and comfort. God comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort one another in ours. We share in the suffering of Christ, and so too our comfort comes through Christ. So what do these opening verses teach us about Jesus and about our role as Christians? God will comfort us and help us, but as believers he may prompt us in his spirit to be the comfort and help that comes from him. We should expect difficulty, we should expect the ways of the world to struggle with the Christian way of life, and vice versa. And we shouldn't expect life as a Christian to, to look just like a successful life in the secular world. And when trouble comes, we must be ready all the time to comfort and help one another. So if you look at verses 8 to 10, and it's clear that Paul is living a difficult life, but he says that during his hardships he has learnt to rely fully on God, and so in God he has set his hope. And do we understand the Christian faith as something that makes all our dreams come true? Is that how we've heard it? That it's going to sort everything out in your life and your life will just be great now? Or... Do we understand the Christian faith as a radical lifestyle change and something that will support and deliver us through the hardships of life that will inevitably come? And Paul continues chapter 1 by explaining that he has had to change his plans. And then he gives justification for this, because his plans were to come visit them. And it might seem odd, but remember that Paul has been attacked by jealous church members before. And they've claimed that he was a hypocrite. And it's likely that he expects to be attacked for this. So look at verse 17. He says, was I fickle with my plans? Do I make plans in a worldly manner? So it's likely that someone has accused him of saying one thing and then going back on his word. Like a trickster. And it's important for our leaders, to, the leaders of our churches in particular, to explain what and why they do what they do so that we can trust them. And it's also very likely, as leaders, that leaders, you will be attacked out of jealousy, out of, uh, you know, envy. And in verse 21, Paul unites himself with all the readers, saying that in God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, he anointed us and sets his seal upon us. Rather, he's not being defensive and bragging. He says that all of them are of one mind under God. So it is right for the leaders of our churches to live with integrity. That in Christ, when they say 
yes to something. It always means yes. But the congregation under the leader must be united. They must too live with integrity and support the honest leaders. With no jealousy, united in the love of Christ. And Paul opens chapter 2 now, of Wizinghead, um, explaining that he didn't visit because it would effectively cause a fight. Because he was upset by the church. Like, 1 Corinthians is a very, like, not aggressive, though. It's not aggressive, but it's very, like, right, this is what's right. You can't be doing this. And he was upset by the church, and he loves them. And he needs to instruct them and give them time to mull over what he said before he visits again. And he goes into detail about how the church needs to handle grievances. So in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Paul says, The punishment by the majority has been sufficient. You ought to forgive and comfort him, whoever it is, so that he will not be overwhelmed. So clearly there's been a dispute, clearly there's been some problems. And he says, the punishment by the majority of the church is sufficient. And then you forgive and comfort this person so that he won't be overwhelmed with grief. So my question is, have you ever seen conflict in the church handled badly? And the obverse of that is, have you ever seen conflict in the church handled wisely that led to reconciliation? Because I've seen churches that didn't rebuke members who are clearly living in sin with no repentance. More importantly, I've seen churches rebuke people in leadership positions who were living you know, sinful lives and not repenting. And I've seen members who have left church angry because the church was too hard on people, or members who have left because they didn't think churches were allowed to, to correct people or discipline people. And when they were called out for something, like challenged on something, they left. You know that old maxim, you can't judge me, and then leave. Well, actually, correction, rebuke, criticism, is not the same as judgment. So like Paul, churches should discipline its members, particularly members who are leading and working for the congregation. And the congregation should open our hearts to be corrected and disciplined if we are in the wrong. And the humble person always expects that they can do something better. They might well be in the wrong. We should also realise that it is our responsibility as Christians to ask forgiveness, to repent of our sins. Not of the Lord's Prayer forgive us our sins it assumes that we have done something bad because we all fall short and if we are serious about following jesus we need to repent for the things we do wrong rather than hide them or arrogantly claim well some of these things i do wrong that's just my truth you can't judge me that is supremely wrong and look at verse 10 and 11 let's read them through because if we hide our sins, if we don't repent, we will easily give sin a foothold to keep coming in. We hide it. Don't challenge it. Don't face it. Don't bring it out into the open. And if the congregation don't rebuke sin and offer forgiveness, the same will go. We will keep letting sin come into our church body. So what do you think of those verses? Do you welcome, they welcome, doesn't mean like you happily welcome it, but do you welcome a challenge or a rebuke if you know you've sinned? Do you repent sincerely when you know you've done wrong? Or do you think that as Christians, hey, it's all good when I, aren't we can't be critiqued or criticised? 
do, do you think that we're not allowed to do that because it's judgmental? Read through the rest of the chapter from verses 12 to 17. So Paul is explaining his movements so that the church don't believe that he's avoiding them. Now, if you look at verse 14, he's saying that even though he had to go on a strange journey, God used him to spread the knowledge of the good news. And so in thinking about this, perhaps life has led you on a journey you didn't expect or a journey you didn't plan for. Are you using the opportunities that you didn't plan for to bring the good news of Jesus with you in your situations? Or, this situation you didn't plan for, are you just focusing on the negatives? That you didn't plan for it, that this is a waste of time or it's ruined your plans? Are you grumbling that you didn't have the super dream life you wanted? Or are you using these opportunities that were unexpected for God? Chapter 2 ends with Paul reminding the church that they are not speaking the good news for profit. They're doing it with sincere hearts that really believe in what they are doing for the good of everybody. Teachers of the church and leaders of the church should be people who are not doing this for profit or for popularity because it shouldn't bring, if you're doing it properly, it shouldn't bring popularity. It should be very challenging. We should be very, very wary of churches that look like a successful business. That looks like it's full of wealth. It's attractive and popular to follow these mega churches and famous Christian speakers and authors and musicians. And a good number of them will be legitimate. But just be careful and really wise and discerning about churches and Christian leaders, not just Christians who work in business, but Christian leaders, church leaders, who are extremely rich and who look like they're pursuing more and more stuff for whatever excuse and whatever reason they give. Because as we know, the love of money leads to evil. And the love of money is extremely tempting. And no matter what excuses big rich churches give about oh well we need the stuff we need the resources we need the money we need all this for you know to reach the lost there is a line there that is really really dangerous the, the humble church leader does it not for profit but because they cannot not do it because they love other people so much that they want to be jesus to them think about it and come back at me if you disagree we'll discuss